guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. Hello, all you beautiful angelic souls. This is your host, Melissa, and you're listening to Mimosa Sisterhood Podcast, where we celebrate the world's greatest women while we get boozy and party. And if you're new here, welcome. That pretty much sums up the point of this show. But our real mission is that we celebrate the life experiences of women throughout history and the women that are kicking ass and taking names today. So I hope you stick along for the ride. We have over 70 episodes for your binging pleasure, and we have so many more incredible ones to come. So I'm really excited you found your way here, and I hope you hang out with us for life. Well, today we have another really incredible women's history episode for you. I'm going to let you know in advance. It's a long one, but it is fire. I am so excited about this episode. It honestly might be one of my top favorites of all time. And I'm talking three years worth of time. And I'm just so amped on it. Every single minute is quality fire and you're going to love the show. So I'm going to keep this intro short so we can dive into the wonderful magic that's to come. But I also just want to note really quick that I am so amped on today's guest host. She is an absolute radiating gem of a woman. And I'm just so excited that I met her through this amazing podcast community and that she was willing to come on the show and share her incredible knowledge of history. And she also presents such an incredibly important woman who is a literal historical icon. And I'm just so excited about this entire podcast. On that note, If you also enjoy this episode just as much as I do, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want extra brownie points, screenshot a picture of you listening to this podcast episode and post it on social media and tag me. And of course, I will know right then and there that you are a VIP team member, but you might also get some freebies coming at you in the mail. That's right, baby. So do me a solid and help spread the Mimosa Sisterhood word, and I might do you a solid back, right? That sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? Cool. Now grab your bottle of wine and let's get ready to party. Everybody say hello to Taya. She is the host and creator of the podcast, For the Love of History, And we about to spit some knowledge.
everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am so excited because I have another history buff joining me on the mic today to help me spread the history word about all the awesome women. So welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, Longtime fan. Super excited. When I got the email, I was like, oh my god, Mimosa's sisterhood wants to talk to me. Get out of here. Yes. Well, (laughs) when you express interest in potentially doing an episode with me, I was like, absolutely hell yes. I... Love your show Thank you. a lot. I Thank think you. you do such an incredible job producing it. Thank and you. you have such an amazing, like, storytelling just narrative that you do that <laughs> I am uh, hopeful to adopt as I continue listening. <laughs> but I was like, oh my God, this is going to be such a good episode with both yeah. of us telling stories about a kick ass woman in history. Like, right? Oh, yes, let's do it. Dream team. So, okay, well, tell everybody about your podcast. Yeah, I would love to. So my podcast is For the Love of History. We, we, I, it just celebrated. (laughs) I don't know how to talk about it. Um, It, we, I just celebrated um, the one-year anniversary of For the Love of History. Uh, I know there's, like, a lot of quarantine podcasts that, like, popped up, and mine happens to be one of those. I am, I originally in the States was a history teacher for seventh graders, seventh grade world history. And I moved to Japan and then became an ESL teacher. And last year I was like, I need a history outlet because my husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, and my two best friends are like, Teo, we can't, we cannot (laughs) listen to you anymore. (laughs) It's too much. I was like, okay. What can I do with myself? So I started For the Love of History, and it's just me. Um, Each episode is about 20 minutes long. I think the longest has been like 30 minutes, super bite size. I talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. Like last uh, Friday, I just uploaded an episode about the night witches from World War II, the Soviet Union night witches. The week before that, we were talking about the Victorian pharmacies, and I've done episodes about the toothbrush. I've done episodes about super badass empresses, and I talk about geisha, and next week is going to be about Victorian nipple rings, so, you know. (laughs) Oh my god! We're we're on the list, right? (laughs) I'm so shocked to hear that... In the Victorian era, they had nipple rings that had to have been like, was that a punishment type of thing? No, like, no. Oh. no. <laughs> people were freaky. Victorian people were freaky. And I can't oh wait to God. talk about it. So, oh yeah, my that's God. for okay. the love of history. Well, that's very exciting. First of all, where are you from in the States? And then how did you end up in Japan? So I uh, was born in a little town of Salina, Kansas. There's like... A couple thousand people there only. Um, So that's where I was born. And my dad is in the military, so we moved around like every three to four years. So it was Kansas, then Nebraska, then Virginia, then Germany, and then Idaho. Um, I went to university there. And I'm now coming to you from Japan, from Hiroshima, actually. Um, And when I was... I did my first year of teaching in the States. I was a world history teacher. And uh, I was a long-term sub. I was the teacher for the whole year for a lady that 
uh, was on maternity leave. I, I had been her student teacher when I was in university. And then she was like, hey, now you have your degree. Just come in here. Help me out. And I was like, yes, of course. Let's do this. <laughs> and <laughs> there was another teacher at the school that was retiring, and he was also a history teacher. And they were like, do you want this job? And I was like, no, I don't. I don't want this job. <laughs> and they were like, okay, okay. And then uh, I had no plan. And I went home, uh, had a little existential crisis. I was like, what the fuck, Taya? Like, you said no? And I was like, oh, why did I say no? And I uh, went Googling, and I was like, how can I teach overseas? Because I just needed to get out of Dodge. Yeah. And I found my previous job, uh, and it was like, teach in Japan. And I was like, yes, done. Let's. I just want to get out. So I didn't speak Japanese when I came. I just had studied Japanese history in university and thought that that would be enough. It was not. It was not. <laughs> and so I moved here and the plan was like, okay, a year, maybe two. And then I'll go back and I'll get my real teaching job. Like I'll, I'll sow my wild oats and then come back. Uh, and then after two years, I was like, one more. It's fine. And then after three years, I was like, what is one more? What's one more? <laughs> and then in my fourth year, I met my boyfriend, who's my husband at the time. Like, I refused to let myself date. I was like, no, dating. And I was like, it's been four years. Like, I can do it. And I met him uh, on Tinder. And, <laughs> and we just hit it off. And now I'm married and I'm staying here forever. Oh, my and, God. Yeah. That's so crazy. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming you must love it. Oh, my God. I love it so much. It's great. It has its ups and downs. Like, when I first moved here, I didn't speak the language at all, and that was really hard. But I studied, and I'm still studying, and it's really lovely. It's so cool. Like, you could just walk down the street. Like, on the road that I live on, there is a tiny little temple that you could just go and see. And sometimes you'll see, like, women walking in kimono going to the izakayas. Like, izakayas are bars here in Japan. And they'll be, like, the hostesses. And they're walking in their kimonos. And then you'll see somebody in, like, super high fashion-y clothes. And it's just... It's a really cool place to be. There's always new things that I'm learning all the time. And my husband yeah. is Japanese, so that's fun, too, having mm. amazing cultural differences right? and totally. just talking about it. And learning learning about Japan through him is really cool. So, uh -huh. yeah, I absolutely have love it. Have you guys visited, like, the States since you've been married? Yeah, we have. We So before we got married, we went uh right before covid happened so i guess no we weren't married when we visited um but yeah we visited the states right before covid happened and he met my family and he loved it like we, we went to idaho and i was like Ooh. <laughs> 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 not a lot of stuff here <laughs> um <laughs> but he loved it and uh, my family loves him and it was really great. So hopefully we can get back there sometime soon. Because yeah, I would like to have a, a wedding ceremony right? sometime. Yeah. So cool. That's such an incredible just like life's journey. Yeah. Like so fun, you it's know, really experiences, fun. <laughs> taking risks, taking chances. 
yeah. being in new places with new cultures, new people, and mm-hmm. so far away from home. So like, far. Just so awesome. Yeah, it's great. Great, just like life. Like I, yeah. I love when people just do the damn thing, you know? Yes. I feel like so much, so many people in the world don't take that step. Everybody mm-hmm. has that dream, that wish that, oh, what if I could do this? What if I could be here? Mm-hmm. What if we didn't have to do X, Y, and Z? And they just live in that for eternity. Yeah. But I love the person that's like, <laughs> we're doing it. We're moving to Japan. Yep. And that's what um, I did. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Yeah. And you can do it. Like, if, if they're... If there is anybody listening right now who's like, I need a sign to do the thing, this is your sign. Do the thing. Sell your car, sell your furniture, pack your life into two suitcases, and get the fuck out. Like, do it. Bounce. (laughs) GTFO. Here's your sign. The universe is telling you. (laughs) Okay, well, are you drinking? I know. What day is it? It's Sunday for you? Are we in the morning time? What's happening? It's Sunday at 10.50 in the morning. (laughs) But we're drinking. Sunday fun day. I ain't got shit to do, so. <laughs> Doing it for the pod, you guys. Doing it for the pod, exactly. So, would you like me to introduce what I'm drinking? In yes, this tell me all cup? about it. So, um, I am drinking Umeshu, which is my, I finished off the bottle. Uh, don't, <laughs> don't judge me. <laughs> so, this is uh, Umeshu. This is like a fancy one. Um, it's a plum wine and it's a super popular drink in Japan. So if you think of Japan, everybody's like, oh, like sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sake is super popular for sure. But umeshu is the second most popular thing. And in my opinion, it's way better than sake, which is actually called nihonshu in Japanese. So what it is, it's a plum liquor, and you soak plums and uh, just so much sugar, a ridiculous amount of sugar in a liquor called sh- shochu, and you just set it and forget it for, like, months. And all of the flavors from the plum comes out into the alcohol, and then you also make alcoholic plums at the same time, which is amazing. You can oh just eat God, them. Oh, my God, you eat them? Oh, yes, and they're yum. so good. They're so good. And it's just this, like syrupy delicious plummy goodness and you can drink it on the rocks you can drink it um cut with water or cut with soda i am a rock lady uh so i usually drink mine on the rocks and it's so good and it's really sweet so i definitely recommend it yeah so it's more of a liquor than it is a wine yeah they call it a plum wine but it's not a wine. It's a, it's a uh-huh. liquor. It's for sure a liquor. So, yeah. Is it, like, the color of plum? It's, like, ambery colored. Oh, It's not purple at all. So Japanese plums here are less of, like, a, like, a, you know, the purpley purple plum color. And they're more of, like, an apricot plum color. Got like it. Like, a little bit of purpley, but mostly, like, apricot colored. So... Yeah. So cool. Isn't it? Well, hell yeah. It's a Sunday morning plum wine on the rocks. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's going to be a great day. Sunday fun day. It is. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. And what um, are you drinking, madam? I, well, it's Saturday night for me uh-huh. over here. And I am drinking a rosé wine that I'm stoked about because I recently just got a bunch of wines from NakedWine.com. And the cool thing about NakedWine.com is that all the wines that they have to offer are from independent 
wineries. So cool. it's all like small business wine wineries, I guess, like around the globe. I actually don't That's know if awesome. it's global. It might just be United States. But it's cool because they're wine bottles that like you're not going to find at Ralph's or mm-hmm. Trader Joe's or whatever the yeah. main grocery store is. So it's kind of just uh-huh. like a cool way to try something new and also just feel good about like supporting the little man Small out there, businesses. you know? Yeah. <laughs> and also so, getting your drink on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this is a rosé wine. It is... Uh, from made from Chris Baker, so like I wasn't oh. kidding when I said small wineries. Like, go hey, Chris, Chris Baker made this. Shout wine. out, <laughs> thanks, Chris. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a 2020 rose, Williamette Ooh. Valley. He calls it his elegant hundred point pinot. He says that possibilities are endless. Every Excellent. inch of this region is unique thanks to Ooh. its layered soils and mineral and rock composition. So he is really selling this bottle of rosé. Excuse me, Chris. Yeah, Chris <laughs> Baker is not messing around with his wine label. He's but I not. love it because it's like a like a geode. This oh, that's this label so cool. Is so cute. It's like when you go and like cut one of those ugly rocks in half, and then you yeah, get to see yeah. the pretty inside. Yeah, that's like what this label is. That's awesome. Um, which I guess is in alignment with his description of it being an endless array of minerals and rock composition. <laughs> he got so, a mineral and rock composition right on the bottle. Yeah, you go, Chris. Well, let's do it. All right, let's get into it. I feel like you should kick us off. All right, let's go. So today we are going to be talking about, I figured since I'm in Japan, coming from Japan, we don't, I don't come from Japan. I am coming at you (laughs) from Japan. (laughs) I thought I would talk about a Japanese woman who also was in America. Um, so today we are going to talk about the super cool lady, Shizue Kato. Um, and Shizue Kato is kind of the, not kind of, she is the Margaret Sanger of Japan. In wow. Yeah, in her um, advocacy for birth control and women's reproductive rights and just women's rights in general in Japan. So let's dive right in. I'll first tell you a little bit about her in the first place. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit about what Japan was like during this time because that's super important. Okay, So Shizue Kato was born on March 2nd in 1897 in Japan to a wealthy ex-samurai family. And so what this means, her dad wasn't an actual like killing people samurai but the wealthy families in Japan during the late 1800s all came from samurai families that were actually like swords out cutting people's heads off families mm-hmm. so that's where we get the the ranking system the economic ranking system in Japan so she was an ex samurai family but she was born into an ex-samurai family. Yeah. And her parents were both highly educated and super wealthy. Her father um, was often going overseas to the U.S. and Canada and would take her with him. And she was really influenced by 
Western ideas and Western culture at an early age, which is really, really rare because Japan had just barely opened up in 1968, yeah, 1968 or 1978 um, to the West. They had been closed as a country to all foreign countries for the last 300 years. So there was no access to anything other than Japan stuff. Yeah. Right? Like, in terms of, like, trading goods and things like that, it was just... Closed off. There was two places in Japan, in all of Japan, two places where the Dutch (laughs) and the Portuguese could come. That's it. The Dutch and the Portuguese in these two little places, these two port towns. Um, And that's it. That was the only access to the outside world that anybody had. And so having... Any encounters with Western ideas, Western culture, Western goods in the first place was extremely rare. So she was fortunate, unfortunate, you know, however you decide to take it, she was exposed to Western ideas and culture at a really young age. Shizue went to school um, and she was highly educated, but she was also in an ex-samurai family, so her life was really determined already like she was gonna get married she was gonna have kids she was gonna get education but it was education like how to be a good housewife how to be Mm -hmm. a good mother how to do house finances and things like that how to run a house basically and so at the age of 17 she got married to her first husband the baron keikichi ishimoto And um, he was a Christian humanist, and he was interested in social reforms. And this is, like, really super rare, uh, once again, because Western ideas just weren't in Japan at the time. And he was the son of Ishimoto Shinruku, which is an important dude in the Imperial Army. So another layer of, um, what is the word? Strictness? No. Not liberal, the opposite of liberal. Conservative! (laughs) I was about to say progressive, and I'm like, no, No. that's still wrong. Right. (laughs) Wrong. So, another layer of conservatism. So, conservatism. So, her family was super conservative. The family that she married into was super conservative. Her husband was, like, Christian conservative in Japan, which was... She just had conservatism all around her in her life, and she didn't know what freedom was. She didn't know that she could live her own life. And after she got married, soon after she got married, she was about 18 years old, her and her husband moved to a coal mining city because he was an engineer. And he went down and worked in the coal mines and would work like 12, 14-hour shifts, her husband would. And while he was working, she would go out and see the people, and they were just living in absolute squalor. And she had never seen this in her life before, because she was living, you know, up in the castle in her wealthy home and just didn't see what was going on. She was really, really sheltered. Mm -hmm. And both her and her husband were so overwhelmed by what they had seen that they both had mental breakdowns and they had to get out. Wow. Yes. They just didn't. What kind of mental breakdown? Like she wouldn't eat. She couldn't sleep. She was just crying all the time. There's not a lot of information about what exactly happened because, you know, Mm -hmm. mental health at the time was not really talked about. So it was, 
just reported that she had a mental health crisis. She stopped eating. So did her husband. Her husband just couldn't go to work anymore. And they were like, we need a change. So they moved to the States. They moved to the States. And she, oh, I didn't tell you this part. Um, That kind of spurred the move to the States. So when she was in this coal mining town, she was really taken aback by how the women were treated. And they just, there were so many babies all over the place. So many children running around, unwanted children, orphans, women who couldn't take care of themselves because they just didn't have enough money to take care of their children in the first place. And she was really affected by this. And one of the reasons why they went to the States is because there was a big workers um, union movement happening during this time. And so that's why they went to the United States. So they went to Washington, D.C. And they started to have some problems in their marriage Her husband was off working and being an interpreter, and she was left. She didn't speak English. She didn't know anything about the United States, and she was left to her own own devices. So she signed up for English classes. She signed up for secretarial courses, and she moved out of her apartment with her husband into her own apartment all by herself. Yeah. She just, like, picked up her stuff and left. She saw all these women, like, live in – it was the 1920s. They were living their best life and – or, I'm sorry, it was the 1910s. And they were, you know, living their life and she was seeing women in a capacity that she'd never seen them in Japan. They were making their own money. They were doing their own things. They were independent, although, you know, it's the the 1910s. It's not – we're not at the height of feminism, but still, it was way different than what she had seen in Japan. And she was just impassioned and motivated by these women that she was seeing. And yeah, she decided to start her own life. And she began socializing with um, socialists <laughs> and communists at the time. And was hanging out with her husband's acquaintances in the government. Her husband wasn't there, but she was. Mm -hmm. And she started making friends and meeting people and going to different parties. She eventually met Margaret Sanger. And they became besties. They were like BFFs. (laughs) Super best friends. Yeah. So... (laughs) Margaret Sanger was like, I want you to take all of these things that I'm trying to do in the States and bring them back to Japan. And uh, Shizue was like, yes, like, I'm going to bring all of this back to Japan with me. (laughs) So (laughs) she learned as much as she could from Margaret Sanger. They met a bunch of times. She learned about birth control. She learned about family planning. She learned about reproductive systems in the first place. She was like, vagina, what's that? uterus never heard of her vulva oh my god like yeah oh my god so So insane isn't it isn't it insane yeah yeah anyway yeah that's a whole nother topic for another time (laughs) (laughs) reproductive health and education so uh, Shizue learned all of this stuff from Margaret Singer and other people that she had come in contact with. And emboldened by all of her newfound freedom, she decided it was time to return to Japan. It was the 1920s, 
and she picked up her stuff and left. She just went back to Japan. That's wild. Right? Picked up her whole life, returned 1921, and she wanted to continue her life of freedom. So it was unprecedented for women to be making their own money in in the 1920s in Japan. It really was just starting. Wait, so she was making her own money? She was making her own money after she returned to Japan. So she started... Um, she started a wool importer shop. Like, she Uh would import wool and yarn and things like that from foreign countries because, um, Western clothing was being made and sold for the first time in Japan in the 1920s. So, previously, everything was made out of cotton and silks in Japan. Um, so she was making mad money (laughs) with her wool shop and then she also opened up her own family planning clinic and started speaking tours where she would make money that way as well and she was also just to you know add more stuff to your resume she was the private sector private secretary of the young women's um christian academy the ywmca nope the ywca (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh my brain so yeah she was the private secretary there so she had lots of different money revenue streams coming at her but she didn't live a life of luxury a lot of the money that she was making she just put right back into the community and during this time i know she's like she's super cool i love her she's really fun um and just like a good person (laughs) totally yeah i wonder what her husband was thinking i have no idea what the hell happened to you i was like (laughs) I don't know. I have no idea. But, I mean, he was also a pretty... mm, Questionable man? Questionable dude. (laughs) Like, I don't really know. There's not a lot of information. First of all, there's not a lot of information about her to begin with, let alone her husband. Like, there's information about him in his government role and what he did, like professionally but nothing really about their personal lives i at the very end of my research that i was doing i found out that she had like three kids um and nowhere in the biographies that i was reading about her did they mention that like at the end of one that i was reading they were like by the way she had three kids with the first husband and one kid with the last husband okay cool 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 yeah i know it's weird so our wonderful lady Shizue, yeah, was on her way to becoming the Margaret Sanger of Japan. And while she was working at all of these different jobs, doing her speaking tours, doing her education, trying to get her clinic started up, she was also publishing writings in support of easier access to birth control for women, and she was arguing that Japan's growing population problem could be solved by women. Japan at the time was actually in the opposite situation that it's in right now. Japan has I think one of the 
fastest growing elderly populations in the world. Really? Yes. People just aren't having babies. And that there's a whole there's a whole whole bunch of reasons for that. But I mean, one of the reasons it was so horrible for women to be having so many babies in the 1920s is because there was just no access to healthcare. There was no access to childcare. There was no access to support. And it's kind of continued on in Japan today. There's hardly any child care services. Women aren't really supported in in ways outside of the, like, nuclear family. Mm-hmm. Usually the only kind of child care that women get is, you know, if you happen to live close to your parents or your in-laws, they just take care of the kids. And is it, like, a taboo thing to have other people taking care of your children? It's just not done. Like, in the States, you can just find a babysitter. There's, like, services, right? There's, like, babysitters.com. Yeah. Daycare like, centers, the- everything. Exactly. Exactly. But here, there's, like, um, Yoichian, which is uh, preschool. And you can go to preschool, I think, from starting from one years old here. And – but that's that's, like, really it. Like, there's no babysitting services. That's not – that's not done here. Hmm. Yeah. And there's not like there's a really good maternity leave for women. You can take up to three years of maternity leave and still have your job, which sounds great. And you can get paid um, full pay for the first year of maternity leave, half pay for the second year and no pay in the third year. But your job is guaranteed for, for when you come back. However, it great women are really restricted in the raises they can get, the promotions that they can get. They're hired at a much lower rate because companies are aware that they will legally have to give women maternity leave. Crazy. Yeah, it's super crazy. It's really awful. The gender gap in Japan is one of the worst of like the developed countries. So that's fun. That's cool. <laughs> Love that. Love to hear that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so it was it has continued since the 1920s when family planning just didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Women's reproductive health just didn't exist. Like child care support didn't exist at all during this time. So her argument was that giving women control of their own reproduction would allow women to achieve greater independence as well as allow there to be like public figures that were women women mm. to become government officials but they couldn't at the time because women in Japan weren't allowed to vote until 1947 just just say just throw that out there but she wanted to work towards that goal and that's what she was doing um Another part of her argument was that birth control would help the people of Japan raise better children as well. She thought that by giving by having fewer children, women could create better education and economic opportunities for the children that they did have. Mm-hmm. Women were just having like 5 and 6 and 7 kids because there was no birth control whatsoever, not even condoms. Like there was and there was no information about how babies were made in the first place. 
they like didn't understand like an ovulation type like a cycle and like no certain times you were more susceptible to getting pregnant than others so it's just like a uh oh let's see what happens yeah exactly it was like a free for all it was oh my god that would be so scary I couldn't imagine being like oh my seventh kid oh right right nine it's awful (laughs) right (laughs) right it's horrible. And so the only connection that people had made is, like, sex equals babies. Like, that's it. But they were like, what about the sex? Like, you know, I'm having sex, but I'm not having a baby each time. What's going on? They just didn't know. Because because Japan had been closed off for those almost 300 years, there was no advancements in medicine, in some technologies. There was a lot of advancements. Japan was not a, a primitive place, which yeah. I hate using that word anyways, but um, it, it just wasn't advanced in medical and um, industrial things as the West was because there was no collaboration. Like in the West, we were having like hella collaboration between Western countries, but Japan is this little archipelago and it just cut itself off and they – didn't get to benefit from the knowledge that the West had started discovering. Mm -hmm. And Shizue was one of the people that brought that knowledge, that reproductive knowledge to Japan, but people were not down. People were not down with her talking about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Because at the time, Japan was really militaristic. The It was the Meiji era during this time, and the emperor was really, really into the military and really into colonization. Because Japan had just opened up to the West, they saw, like, oh, shit, like, the British Empire is real big. America has a few colonies. Like, we want to be a developed nation. We need some colonies. So they looked to Korea and China and they were like, we're going to colonize you guys. And they did a little bit. And Japan's military was like the focus of the country at the time. So the idea was the more children you have, the more people you can have in the military, the more workers you can have to support the economy, which supports the military, which then supports the nation. That was the idea at the time. So then you have Shizue coming in like, no, 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 stop this. We can't be having any more babies. We need to plan this shit. (laughs) The government was like, no, 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 no. What do you think you're doing? We want a big of a population as we possibly can. Yeah. So they were pissed. She's like, but the moms can't handle it. Exactly. (laughs) Right? Stop the babies. Right. We have an epidemic. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And I can only imagine how frustrating it was for her to like come back to Japan and be like, listen, we have we have the technology. She's like, Margaret, I need your help. Get on a plane. (laughs) And you know what? Margaret did. Did But we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about that a little bit later. So that is where we're at right now in Japan. We've got this singular woman and she's got uh, followers and stuff, but really she is this like pillar of women's advocacy and birth control and she's really trying her darndest and she got arrested. She got arrested in, when was it? 1937 for promoting 
dangerous thoughts. That's what it was. Oh, she got arrested for promoting dangerous thoughts, specifically for her advocacy advocacy of birth control and abortion rights, which was like, yeah, it's the A word. We can't. So she spent two weeks in prison and it temporarily ended the birth control movement altogether. She was forced to close her clinic and stop all of her writing and stop open openly advocating for women's birth control and women's sexual rights, women's reproduction. Everything stopped. And then World War II happened. And everything got put on hold. All of life everywhere in the world got put on hold. And so did birth control. But thankfully, uh, Shizue survived World War II, and she, uh, in 1946, a year after the war ended, women were finally given the right to vote in Japan, and she then became the first woman government official in the Japanese diet, in the parliament, their government system there. So she was the first woman in Japanese government. Was she elected? Like, she... She was elected. Oh, really? Yeah, she was elected. Women could vote for the first time. She... Because I'm uh, like, she was thrown in jail. People were pissed. Like, how yeah. did she get elected? Yeah, she got elected. Somehow, some way. She was elected into the Japanese diet and was the first woman in the Japanese diet. So cool. Yeah, she's super cool. And that's when the birth control and the family planning and the sexual health classes started up again. And she went hard. And that's when she brought in the big guns. And in 1955, she actually invited Margaret Sanger to visit Japan for the Fifth International Conference of Planned Parenthood. Um, so it was the first time Planned Parenthood's international conference had been held in Japan. It was a big, big deal. Yeah. Big deal. So, cause it was just like, people were like, what is this? It's 1955. We are still yeah. new to reproductive health. Volvo, who is she? We're back to that. So, <laughs> and it, Margaret Sanger came, she spoke to the people um shizue actually was her interpreter for the whole time and margaret singer actually stayed there for quite some time i mean of of course she would it it took forever to get to japan back in the day so she stayed for a long time she did some talks some advocacy she went to um the japanese diet the parliament and she actually got to meet the emperor of japan Oh when my she God, came so as well. Cool. Yeah, it was super, super cool. Um, Do you yeah. think they knew of her and, like, what she was doing in the in the States? Were they, like, aware that she was kind of, like, making big change? I'm going to go with a no. Okay. I don't know for sure. I, I have no idea for sure. But mm. I my guess is a no. Because the only news that was happening in the U.S. about Japan at the time was, like, backtracking propaganda um, mm-hmm. from World War II, um, from the Japanese concentration camps that were in the, in the States, all of the propaganda that America was just pumping to the public, 
there was not a lot of positive news that was coming um into america about japan so i'm gonna go with a no just based off of what i know about the time so which is unfortunate and a lot of people in japan don't know about her as well like unless you're into women's history um you just don't know. I was asking my husband about it because um, I always double check with him before I talk about anything Japan related just to ch- just to check. Um, and I was asking him and he's like, I have no idea who that is. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> and he did his own research and he was like, oh, my God, how did I not know about this woman who was the first like birth control and family planning aside she was the first elected woman elected official into the japanese diet he was like why do i not know about this yeah i was like crazy it was suppressed it was hella suppressed yeah because even though she was an elected official the rest of the government was like we don't like you Mm. and what you represent so gtfo (laughs) yeah Yes, yes. So, um, just to wrap things up, uh, I wanted to tell you about uh, some of the organizations that she created. So, she was the founder of the Japan Family Planning Association in the 1950s, and she was the president of the Family Planning Federation of Japan for several years in 1974, and she was the vice president of the Japanese Organization of International Cooperation in Family Planning since 1984 and then um she was a diet member for 20 years beginning in 1946 and she was a political figure until her death at 104 years old (laughs) what was she eating i don't know oh my god i don't know Girl died at 104 years old, and up until, like, the last few years of her life, she was still writing, she was still advocating, she was still out there with her little sign, protesting, she was doing it, she was getting it, it was amazing. Yeah. That is so old. (laughs) So old. Think of, like, how much life she lived and saw. I mean, to have been living before World War II... Through Before it. World War One, yeah, she lived through both wars. <laughs> lived through the women's rights movement, reproductive rights movement, like so it's much amazing. life was lived. So she much, life. so much like progression through history, mm-hmm. and was a yes. part of it. Like exactly, oh my god. I know. And, like, to end us on a little happy note, before she died in 1975, she did receive um, the the government recognized her achievements, finally, and all the work that she had done in family planning and reproductive health. And she was awarded the First Order of the Sacred Treasure, which is an award given only by the emperor. He selects, he is the one who gives the award and you get to meet the emperor and things like that. And it's, it's one of the highest orders that a civilian can get in Japan. So. Wow. So cool. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that is Shizue Kato. There's so much more that I just wasn't able to fit in. She's such a cool lady. So research her on your own. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like wondering, like, do you think, like, obviously she lived this life, 
mm-hmm. and then she lived this like whole other life which like mm-hmm. i i wonder if she never moved to the states would that not have happened like was was the move the big giant thing that sparked this like new found passion of hers just like 100%. seeing the american women and the life that they were living and being like whoa yeah what the hell this is happening here mm-hmm. like and that just sparked it yeah I think so. I would have to – I would venture a guess that in combination with living in that coal mining town and seeing – like having her oh, eyes yes. open yes. to that not – happened first, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think in combination with that and her going to the United States, like that's what made her into such a passionate advocate. I think if she would have only seen the coal mining town – I think she would have been appalled and heartbroken, but not know what to do. Yeah. Like, where do you go? How how do you change this situation if you have no knowledge of how to change the situation? Like, does that make sense? Yeah. What yeah, do you do that- in that in that kind of situation? So it just like blows my mind how people's lives can take so many different directions and how Mm -hmm. just the fate of who you meet and when can spark this entire eruption of like a massive movement in a completely different country yeah exactly (laughs) it's so nuts it's so nuts i when i at the end of my woman's story i have a quote Mm -hmm. that i'm gonna speak that is hers that just Mm -hmm. relates to this woman's whole story where i'm just like it really is remarkable how one thing can just change so much yeah yeah it's It's so so amazing i have goosebumps right now i'm like (laughs) so cool (laughs) it's so cool and it's like you know i just always think And I always, like, think it's important for everybody listening to think that when you're living your own life and you're just like, I don't do shit, nothing's going on, what am I doing with myself, I've, like, contributed to nothing, I have no future, like, I I imagine that, like, she probably didn't think that there was much ahead of her either when she was, like, just kind of, like, you know, existing in Japan with no plan, no really, like major thing she was going to do with her life outside of pumping out a million babies, babies and just like being a mom like yeah you know how do you feel super inspired about that everyone's doing it it's the only mm-hmm. thing you can do like mm-hmm. i imagine she's probably never thinking like oh my god what amazing things am i gonna do in my life one day oh nothing right? there isn't right? anything and then like it just ha- like just one little thing can spark mm-hmm. an entirely different door to just yeah. open with like the most beaming of lights. Yeah. And it's you never know. Like you never know what that could be. You never know when exactly. that could happen, what could cause it, what opens for you and how mm-hmm. that open door could lead to so many other doors. I just feel like it's always just such a friendly reminder to be like, we really don't know what's ahead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we really don't know. Exactly. And it's like it could be massive. Yeah, everybody's life contributes to history. I forgot the the writer who said that, but I love her. But you're so right. Everybody's life contributes to history. Everybody's life can change at the drop of a hat and just turn into something amazing. 
so cool. And, so and just different. the fact that yeah. she met Margaret Sanger and then basically just unleashed this entire world to a completely different country mm-hmm. from that, just that simple meeting and that friendship. Mm-hmm. Like how that spread. Yeah. So nuts. So eloquently put. Good job, you. So cool. <laughs> I'm so excited that I learned about her. Yay. I'm so glad. I was kind of, I was a little bit hesitant on like, oh, should I do her? Like, is she is she relatable? Are people going to like the Japanese history aspect of it? Like, it didn't happen in the States. Like, oh, we, gonna, is it going to resonate? So I'm glad yeah, it did. I, I cover so many people on this show. Lots of them are not from the States. In fact, awesome. the woman I'm about to cover is not from the States. Ooh, ooh! Um, but I'm so excited because I feel like they have very similar <gasps> missions in life. Yes. And, uh, I mean, they did, they were, both of them are huge female advocates, like, fighting for women's rights, and they both were reprimanded in their own ways. Mm-hmm. And oh continue to push along. I'm so, so I, just I can't love wait that relation. I can't wait any longer. I need you to tell me who this woman is. I don't know who it is. She kept it a secret from me, and I'm dying. <laughs> I need to know. So, I'm actually really curious if you know of this woman. Today, I'm covering Malala Yousafzai. Yes, you know her. Yes, I do. She is um in the school that I used to teach at. There's a whole chapter about her in our in our ESL textbook. So love it. So but I'm I ready. hope I I hope I didn't butcher the last name. I listened to numerous YouTube videos trying to get it down. Mm-hmm. First name Malala, last name Yousafzai, I believe. Yousafzai. Awesome. Does that sound right to you? That it does sound right. Mm-hmm. Okay, Yousafzai. So, for anybody that doesn't know, she's a young Pakistani activist who defied the Taliban while demanding that girls should have rights to an education. So, Malala was born in 1997. She is so young. That's crazy. Can't even believe it. She is a baby. Um, born in 1997 in the Swat district of Pakistan's northwestern province, and she was born into, like, a lower middle class family. When she was born, the family did not have enough money for a hospital birth, so she was born right there in the home with the help of her family and her neighbors. Wow. And she was given the name, the first name Malala, which is actually inspired by Malalai of Maiwand, who is a famous poet and a warrior woman from southern Afghanistan. Oh, cool. Which I'm so interested in looking into. I'm like, right? ooh, I'm adding her to the list. Next what has this woman of- done? <laughs> right? <laughs> so cool. So um, now people probably are aware that it's not totally common for the people of Pakistan to celebrate the births of daughters. It's not the most common thing in this area. Um, But her father was over the moon about her birth. He was absolutely in love with her. And he was determined to give her the exact same opportunities that her brother would obviously just naturally have. So love a good dad. Right. And he really raised her to be very empowered, very Mm -hmm. vocal, and to speak her truth and what was on her mind without hesitation or apology. Again, not common, especially in a place mm. like Pakistan. 
So basically, she was given all the same opportunities as her brother, so she could speak multiple different languages. She was fluent in English as well as Pashto Urdu. Mm-hmm. And she was educated by her father, who was a poet, a school owner, an educational activist, and he ran his own girls' school in their village. Oh so, God. again, just all about it. And so when she was growing up, she really wanted to be a doctor. Her dad had kind of, like, hopes that she would become a politician. Mm. But, like, also, like, big dreams, doctor, politician. Right? Like, shooting for the stars here, you know? <laughs> you know what? I'd rather you not be a doctor. I'd rather you be a politician, if we're being right? honest. Like, okay. <laughs> so, so, yeah. The, and, you know, he said, uh, apparently, like, they, the two of them would stay up late at night talking about politics together, like, long after the brothers had been put to bed. So they had just, like, a really good relationship. relationship. And, Aww. again, he was having very adult conversations with her about life, social justice, uh, gender rights, you know, just all of the things that were happening um, during this time. And so, I mean, we're talking like the 2000s. She was born in 1997, Seven, so in the right. 2000s. Wow. Uh, so Malala really loved going to school. She was obsessed with it. But at the start of 2008, the Taliban took over their town in Swat Valley. And shit really hit the fan. Mm -hmm. So the Taliban came in. Extremists were, like, taking over. They banned so many random-ass things. You were, like, no longer allowed to have a television. (gasps) You couldn't play music. What? Uh, Women were not allowed to, like, go to the malls anymore. That was, like, over with. Mm -hmm. And they banned girls, young girls, from attending school. Oh, my God. So... If anybody defied these orders, they were punished Mm. very strictly to the point that it was very common to see the bodies of beheaded policemen displayed around their town. Policemen? Policemen. Oh, my God. So complete horror. Yeah. Oh, my God. They were being controlled by full-blown terrorists and... If they didn't follow these rules, they were executed and publicly. So God. just absolute, just completely, just a terrifying experience. Mm-hmm. So Malala was 11 years old while all of oh. this was happening. And oh, baby. Oh. she had to say goodbye to all her schoolmates because school was over for the girls. Mm-hmm. So she had to say goodbye to all her friends, not knowing if she'd ever see anybody again. Like, who knows what the future is going to hold. And she just had to, like, head home and it was done for her. Mm-hmm. But her brothers could still go to school. So Straight up bullshit. Just f- totally fucked up. Yeah. And then... A few months later, and then again, men- remember I already mentioned her dad is big into education. Mm-hmm. He's big into girls' rights. He's an activist himself, so he basically like took his daughter and was like, "Oh no, we're gonna we're gonna fight this shit. Like Aww. we can't just sit back while this is happening." Aww. So sh- he took her to like local press clubs and got her to start public speaking on the matter. <laughs> so she was 11 so she had her first like public appearance shortly after the schools got closed and she stood up in front of an audience and was quoted to say how dare the taliban take away my basic right to education 
Oh. And I think she, like, yelled it out into this, yeah. like, very, like, expressive and emotional. Uh-huh. And her speech was covered by newspapers and television channels throughout the region. So it, like, kind of got out there. People okay. saw it. News was also spreading internationally about, like, what was happening. And the BBC caught news of, like, the growing influence of the Taliban in Swat Valley. And so Mm -hmm. they wanted to, like, dive in there and get firsthand knowledge from real people Mm -hmm. on their experience of, like, living in their hometowns after it being invaded by the Taliban. And they wanted to, like, somehow get in there and, like, get knowledge and information that they could then produce to the world. And so a BBC correspondent was able to get in touch with, like, one of the local schools where she was from. And they were like, hey, we're interested in having a school child write a blog for the BBC about their experience. And it's going to be, like, produced, like, on our blog website. And so the teacher was like, okay, uh, I'll ask around and, like, see who's interested. Like, people are getting beheaded and, like, we aren't even allowed to go to the mall. But, like, let me, let me, like, you know, reach out to the homies and see, like, who's into it. Oh, my God. That's such, like, such a tone deaf thing for the BBC to do. Like, like, part of me is like, yay, glad you did it. Now we have that, like, that information but also you guys oh there's some shit going down we're not really worried about your blog like that's not (laughs) priority number one (laughs) exactly so the school teacher like reaches out and basically couldn't find anybody because they're the parents of the children were like, hell no. Yeah. Like, our no. kid is not going to be writing for your fucking blog. Like, we're under attack here. Like, what do you mean? This is really dangerous of a position for you to put us in. Like, yeah. it's, it's not happening. But, Mm-mm. of course, Malala's dad was like, oh, well, we're huge education activists over here. So, um, I'm going to see if my daughter's interested. To oh, which God. she was. Oh. So, she basically, like got this deal with the BBC to write a blog for them on her day-to-day life living under the Taliban influence. Oh, my God. And so this is what's crazy is that she was basically, like, handwriting out, like, little journal entry notes and, like, passing them over to reporters that were, like, I don't know if they were undercover or what they were doing, but they were there somehow or meeting her places. And they were taking her handwritten notes and scanning them like, into a system and then, like, rewriting them into a blog or something like that. What? She didn't have a computer. She wasn't even allowed to go to school. So, yeah. like, they were handwriting notes to get the blog entries to BBC Whoa. editors and producers. I did not know that. That was yeah. not in my kid's textbook. <laughs> so then, like, time's going by and... The Pakistani Taliban had, like, already put out the order, like, no girls can go back to school. And they were going around and, like, blowing up schools. They were blowing up, like, hundreds and hundreds of schools and girls' schools. So I guess in Pakistan, there would be, like, co-schooling where it's boys and girls. They sometimes Uh had all boys, sometimes had all girls. They were blowing up the all-girls schools. Like, no, we're not kidding. You're never going back to school again. We're demolishing your schools. And so, you know, they're just living their lives. Bombs are going off. Gunfire is happening around them. It's a complete war zone that they're living in. And... Then, in February 2009, the girls' schools were still ordered to be closed, and it's Mm -hmm. been, like, months now. Mm -hmm. 
And so the boys' private schools were like, well, this is fucked up and we're over it. So we're actually going to stand in solidarity and we're going to close too. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they basically were like, if the girls' schools are being closed, we're not going back to school either. Good for them. And then they eventually had to reopen because, like, the Taliban didn't care. Yeah. And then they basically were like, okay, fine. We've heard you're pissed. We're going to lift the restrictions on girls' education only if they attended a boy-girls' school. So if you go to a boy-girls' school, girls, you can go back to school again. You're fine. But all the girls' schools, you're still not allowed to go back. So... The girls that went to co-education were allowed to go back to school again, but they were required to wear um, burqas. Uh-huh. Full, the full burqas? Yes. Like, oh, wow. Yes. And so the full burqa basically is like an entire fabric garment over your entire mm-hmm. body covering head to foot mm-hmm. with usually like a small slit for your eyes. Mm-hmm. Which is just like... <sighs> Which is fine if that's your choice to wear because it's your choice. But yes. when it's forced upon so- anything that's forced <laughs> upon someone, like that's fucked up. Well, it's also like we're girls are one, girls can't go back to school. Two, we're gonna blow up all the girls' schools. Three, okay, fine. Some girls can go back to schools only if they're in the presence of boys, and those girls have to be completely covered from head to foot so no one can see them. Like yeah. I'm just like could you imagine <laughs> a young girl and like this right? is these rules are happening? And how many mixed messages and what that does to your feeling of self-worth and value? Like like I am I lesser than a boy. I have to cover myself even I can't when, even learn oh to my spell. God. I can't yeah. even read. Like what no. do you mean? Mm-mm. And then no, that's okay, awful. fine, I'm allowed to learn again as long as no one can see me. Mm-hmm. That is so horrible. I just it, it breaks my freaking heart. I know. Like as a teacher, like I have my little babies and I have I have a very small class, only 7 kids. <laughs> And three of them are girls, four of them are boys, and I cannot imagine forcing my little lady babies to have that or having somebody forcing those kinds of things, forcing my kiddos not into, into school, like forcing them out of school. I would rage. I would absolutely rage. It breaks so, yeah, my so heart. She, it's so horrible. And so she's writing about all this in the blog, Ugh. like BBC's. Oh, I forgot to mention, by the way. Yeah. Sorry. Because okay. obviously this is such a dangerous thing for somebody to be blogging for the BBC about what's mm-hmm. happening in their town. Yeah. She was writing under a pseudonym. So oh, it was not her goodness. first and last name. She I had like a pseudonym <laughs> going down. So the Good. Taliban knew that like entries were coming through because it was ha- like in the news, but mm-hmm. they did not know who it was. So she- her identity was protected. Oh, thank goodness. So, so yeah, no one knew it was her, but she was writing and funneling this info about what was happening. Wow. So then mm-hmm. finally in March, her, like, contract for this diary comes to a close, and it's mm-hmm. it's just – and it's, it's just done. Like, what she signed up yeah. for ended. But shit, you know, we liked what we got. Um, w- this was really good. We want to do a documentary. <laughs> and so they, like, talk to her dad, and he's like, of course we're going to do a documentary. <laughs> Oh, my God. Like, part of me is like, go, Dad. But then part of me is like, Dad's job. I know. So, yeah, they definitely, like, 
conflicting. I mean, I think it's obviously telling that this guy was a hardcore advocate. For sure. And that's great. Yeah. However, I think he didn't always use his best judgment in terms of, like, how it could affect his loved ones around him. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, Because, obviously, his daughter was put in scenarios that were very dangerous for an 11-year-old girl. Yeah. And things get a lot worse later in the story. Yeah. (laughs) So, so they agree to do this. But, like, right at the same time, the Pakistani army moves into their region again to, like, regain control. And it sparks the second battle of SWAT. And so Mm -hmm. her hometown basically had to get evacuated. And the whole family had to separate and get, like, displaced into different areas. Mm -hmm. So her father, of course, goes off to, like, protest at the town hall. Mm -hmm. And she gets sent to the countryside to live with relatives where she's, like, out of all the mix of the craziness and is just, like, in a safe zone. And while she's there, she's, like, filming this documentary. So they're, she's safe. She's They're doing the documentary. Things are fine. But because her dad is going, like, hardcore protest style, mm-hmm. he starts getting death threats and, like, public death threats. So the Pakistani Taliban are like, fuck you, dude. Like, we see you. Like, yeah, you're openly protesting. So, like, we're obviously going to kill you. Like, you can't do this shit. Like, we're running the, we're running the show here. So uh. death threats start coming in. And then her documentary gets finished and it gets released. And it's a short one. It's not, like, a massive movie or anything like that. It's Mm -hmm. just, like, a short little, like, one documentary clip about her and her and, like, what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, like, it's done. It gets released. And, of course, it's, like, sparks a lot of interest. So she gets reached out to for, like, numerous interviews for national TV stations, which, of course, then results into her blog identity being revealed. (gasps) No! Yes. Which then, of course, results into people wanting to have her publicly appear on television to speak to her blog and her documentary and just, like, like, you know, speak to, like, what happened, like, what's going on. And because her and her dad are, like, such major advocates and they're all about the protesting for, like, women's rights, she agrees to it all. So she starts doing a lot of public appearances and just starts, like, now publicly advocating, like, internationally because it's being broadcasted over the globe in various countries. Yeah. And so she, in 2011, she trained with the local girls empowerment organization called Aware Girls, who mm-hmm. whose training included... Um, advice on women's rights and empowerment to peacefully oppose radicalization through education. So okay. she's, like, doing that. And then that same year, she was, I think, like, nominated for the International Children's Peace Prize of the Dutch Children's Advocacy Group called Kids' Rights Foundation, which mm. was really big because she was the first Pakistani girl to ever be nominated for the award. So really huge for her. She's also still very young. Keep in mind, she's like yeah. 12 or 13 right now. So Just a full baby. Just a baby. And uh, the announcement when she was like nominated, they said, quote, Malala dared to stand up for herself and other girls and use national and international media to let the world know girls should also have the right to go to school. So her public profile was rising 
And uh, people were getting to know who she was. She was like, you know, word was spreading. And then she was awarded Pakistani's first National Youth Peace Prize two later, or sorry, two months later in December. And then that same month, the prime minister awarded her the National Peace Award for Youth. So she's just like railing in award after award. Everyone knows what she's doing. Like, there's no secret. She's yeah. She's really made, I mean... She's done a lot, but she's also just been a huge voice of just, Mm -hmm. like, bringing awareness to what's happening in her hometown, what's happening with young girls having their basic human rights stripped from them, and just, like, being a voice to the cause. And so then in 2012, she starts planning to organize what she calls the Malala Education Foundation. So it's, like, her big foundation that she's created, and it helps poor girls go to school. So obviously what she loves and what she stands yeah, for. Yeah. But again, like the name's getting out there. She's just becoming like more famous, more well-known. And now her death threats are starting to come in. Oh, God. So the Taliban's pissed and they're just like, fuck this girl. Who does she think she is? And they start mm-hmm. like literally producing death threats through like their radio station. Um, they're getting them in the newspaper somehow. And they're like slipping death threats under her front door. Oh, God. So they, like, know where she is. Yeah. (gasps) And so eventually a spokesman for the Taliban, like, makes a public statement that, like, we basically are being forced to act and we've unanimously agreed that we're going to have her killed. And so on October 12, 2012, a Taliban gunman boards her school bus that she's riding after completing – her exams at at school and they shot her three times shattering the left side of her skull and so according to reports a masked gunman entered the bus and shouted which one of you is malala speak up otherwise i will kill all of you so she identified herself and she was shot along with two other girls on the school bus who actually both survived the attack and then were stable Mm -hmm. enough to speak to reporters about, like, what had happened. Mm -hmm. Um, But after the shooting, she was airlifted to a military hospital where doctors were forced to begin operating after swelling developed in, like, the left portion of her brain, which had been damaged by the bullet when it passed through her head. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so after five hours of operation, they successfully removed the bullet, which had lodged in her shoulder near her spinal cord. And then the following day, they performed a surgery where they, like, removed part of her skull to allow room for swelling. Mm -hmm. So she basically goes through, like, so much shit after Mm -hmm. this this attack. Like, so many surgeries... She was in a coma for, like, 10 days. Oh, like, God. the recovery is out of control. It lasts forever. She went through so much, like, physical hardship on her body after this a- attempted murder. Oh, my God. And she was 14. Years old. I'm, like, tearing up right now. Holy cow. This poor little baby, 14 years old, has gone through not being able to go to school going through a literal hell as her life like then uh, being allowed to go back to school but being forced to wear a 
you know, clothing that she doesn't want to wear and then being forced away from her home and then fearing that her dad is going to get killed because he is trying to yeah. be an advocate for her and education for all girls and then getting death threats and all the while she just keeps on going. Yeah. Oh, baby. And then gets shot in the freaking head. They literally climb on her school bus and shoot a 14-year-old. She was, like, about to turn 15. So I think she was in the last couple weeks of being 14 years old. But so young. And so also, young. like, how lame. Like, really? Yeah. You're, like, you're the Taliban and you're, like, out here killing a kid? Like, piece of for real? Human garbage. Like, you're oh, that God. threatened by a little girl? Girl? <laughs> by that all little girls? That's yeah. a lot. This is a lot about you, <laughs> sir. But it also is, like, proof that, like, she, people, they knew that she had power. Yes. They knew that she could make an impact. People know that women have power, and that's why people keep women down. And that's a whole nother topic for another day, but I agree I with you 100%. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was so hand obviously, I'm, I'm upset about this. <laughs> The murder attempt got worldwide media coverage and Mm -hmm. people were pissed. Yeah. Pissed. Like, Barack Obama had a statement. Hillary Clinton had a statement. Angelina Jolie. Like, Madonna, I think I did a whole concert where she, like, put a tattoo of Malala's face on her back and, like, dedicated a song to her. Like, people around the world were making statements about, we're fucking pissed that this Uh happened. Like, you've got to be kidding me. Uh So it was, like, a total outcry globally. And then the chief spokesman of the Pakistani Taliban claimed responsibility for the attack. They're like, yeah, we did it. And they were quoted to say, Malala is the symbol of the infidels and the obscenity. And they added that if she survived the attack, they would go on to just keep making murder attempts and kill her off. And they also said that they believed that Malala had been brainwashed by her father. They said, quote, we warned him several times to stop his daughter from using dirty language against us, but he didn't listen and forced us to take this extreme step. No, sir. So, like. (laughs) No, sir. That's wrong. That's false. Basically, after the attack, they figured out who did it. It was a 23-year-old graduate student in chemistry who remained at large and I believe is still at large. And they believe that he's now in hiding in Afghanistan. So basically, she's now living in England. Her family meets her out there. They're like, okay, we're going to lay low out here for a while. Like, let's just recuperate. Let's recover. Let's, like, Uh be in safety. Everyone's happy that they're there. They're being protected. She starts going back to school in England. Again, just as, like, straight A's, killing the game. And then she, on her 16th birthday, she has her very first public appearance where she speaks at, like, a U... Speaks to the United Nations, at Mm -hmm. the United Nations. I'm not totally sure. But they're having some kind of conference and she's like leading it. <laughs> and it's her oh first God. public appearance since her attack. Oh. And they're basically like the whole call for this conference is to to call for worldwide access to education. Mm-hmm. And so the UN dubbed this event Malala Day. Oh. And she had over 500 young education advocates from around the world in the audience while she was speaking. And she was quoted to say at the event, 
The terrorists thought they would change my aims and stop my ambitions, but nothing changed in my life except for this. Weakness, fear, and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage was born. I am not against anyone, neither am I here to speak in terms of personal revenge against the Taliban or any other terrorist group. I'm here to speak up for the right of education for every child. I want education for the sons and daughters of the Taliban and all terrorists and extremists. Just like so humble, so sweet. So she received standing ovations and she followed it by saying Malala Day is not my day. Today is the day of every woman, every boy, and every girl who has ever raised their voice for their rights. So I'm just like, she's 16. Like, are you kidding me? It's just insane. So then on her 18th birthday, she, on her 18th birthday, Mm -hmm. she's opening a school in Lebanon near the Syrian border so that she can help Syrian refugees go to school and offer them education for girls aged 14 to 18. So that's how she's celebrating her birthday. Um, And then in 2014, she was announced a co-recipient of the 2014 Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, For her struggle against the suppression of children and young people and for the right of all children to have an education. And she received the prize at 17 years old. Oh, that happened before her 18th birthday Uh then. Um, But she became the youngest person to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize. So, so cool. And all this sounds great, right? We're like, Mm -hmm. yay, you survived your attack. You went back to high school. You finished with straight A's. You're safe, like, you're winning all these awards. Everyone loves you. Not Mm -hmm. so much. Mm. So, apparently, there's a lot of negative reception about her in Pakistan. How? Why? What? (laughs) So, it turns out that, basically, her opposition to Taliban policy makes her a very, like, makes her very unpopular among Mm -hmm. Taliban sympathizers. Didn't know there were Taliban sympathizers. Apparently there are. Had no idea. Oddly, there are people there that were hating on her after this happened. Many many people claimed there was conspiracy, that her dad was a spy, she was a spy, they coordinated the whole attack, like, all kinds of stupid rumors got brought up that, like, spread like wildfire. Um, also, she ended up writing, like, a, a memoir about her life. She called it I Am Malala. Uh-huh. And her book was banned in all Pakistani private schools. And the president released his own book called I Am Not Malala. What? And the book <laughs> accuses her of attacking Pakistan's army under the pretense of female education. And it describes her father as a double agent and, and a traitor. And it what? denounces Malala's fund, like her her Malala fund of education, uh-huh. um, for its promotion of secular education. So Excuse me, what? it's basically a whole like 
complete bullshit book saying a bunch of lies about her and her family. It's propaganda. That's what it is. It's propaganda, basically. And it's not even creative propaganda. I am not Malala. Who is the creative team on that that one? Oh, my God. Like, how petty do you get? The girl got shot on a school bus, and you're doing this? Right? Right in a whole it, ass book. complete madness. It is. What the figgity Complete fuck, madness. Man. Ridiculous. Yeah. So in 2018, mm-hmm. she goes back to Pakistan for the first time since the shooting. Then she goes to visit her, her, her hometown in Swat mm-hmm. Valley. And there's some group called APPSF. Mm-hmm. And I guess they basically represent the 173,000 private schools in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And they organized an entire day that they called I Am Not Malala Day. Oh, my God. While what? she was there. Like, <laughs> like I'm I'm sorry, what? The, the uh, I have no words. I'm speechless. The pettiness, speechless. the ridiculousness, the just ass backwardsness of all of that. Yeah, it's mortifying. Jeez. So basically, like, she goes on to complete college in last year, 2020. She -hmm. completed her degree at Oxford University. Today, she's 23 years old. I think she's turning 24 soon. She might be 24. No, I think she's turning 24, like, in a couple months. Mm -hmm. And I believe last October, she launched her own book club subscription where she will choose a book every month that will get sent directly to her club members. And the books that she chooses highlight voices that have historical been underrepresented so of course sounds like her you know just a sweet angel right and that's literally all i could find on what she's doing now oh my gosh i'm kind of glad that's all you could find because she's like seems like she's taking a step back she's working on herself i mean she deserves it she's done more in her short life than most people have in their entire lives. Like, she deserves a break. She deserves a little bit of anonymity right now. Yeah. And, like, I even read her, like, she was in an interview, and they're like, what are you going to do after college? And she's Mm -hmm. like, I don't know. She's (laughs) like, I have no fucking clue. Like, I literally have no idea. Like, what should, like, what should I do? Like, right? I feel like I've done it, like, I've, I've done a lot, and, like, I really don't even know what direction to take my life in, because, like, shit's gone down since I've Uh been born and like I just don't even know what I want to do and then of course there's like this pandemic happened and it's like she's living through this pandemic and like she's got like finishing her degree in the middle of a pandemic and they're like what's next she's like I don't fucking know (laughs) right that's a shitty question to ask people who are about to graduate from university anyways add on all the other stuff that she's done in her life add on a fucking global pandemic like that question should be outlawed when I was graduating university and people are like what are you gonna do next I don't know go away okay don't (laughs) ask me that anymore no one likes that question no no one no likes, one likes that question. it i think she should take some time off i think so too <laughs> take a vacation i'm like regroup maybe at the end right? of your 20s right a little bit of therapy like <laughs> so the quote i wanted to end on on with her which i mm-hmm. thought was just like really there are so many great quotes and i kind of just like this one because it was very simple but also just reminded me of your woman and Aww. um Basically, the quote is, 
one child, one teacher, one book, one pen can change the world. Just very sweet, simple, but so factual and so true. And it's, again, it's just who knows what might happen and what you what you might do that could change mm-hmm. the world when you aren't yeah. even planning on it it's not even exactly. a plan of yours yeah. just like shit happens and then you're like okay i guess this is it and this is what we're doing now <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, that's so awesome. that is her story it's so it's <sighs> just it's a lot it's heavy mm-hmm. it's painful it's tragic i mean i i knew a very little bit about her before this episode, but you have just taught me so much about her, and I was, Not. like, on a roller coaster ride. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Woo! Got some Ooh-wee. strong women on today's episode. I know, and us included. Fighting the man, like, ain't taking shit from nobody. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you I so much. It. That was Thank an amazing you. episode. That was a great episode. It was <gasps> so good. Yeah. Love it. Holy smokes, was that not an incredible episode? I'm telling you guys, one of my faves of all time. And Taya, just a gem. I can't I can't stop singing her praises. <laughs> I feel like we should invite her back. Like not once, but twice, but like a hundred more times, right? Right? Don't forget, we have a kick-ass monthly newsletter that I write every month and it includes lots of fun things like women's history, women's news, female artists, new moon manifestations, sneak peeks about our upcoming merchandise, which if you've been following me on Instagram, you know that's launching very soon. So if you're interested in receiving this monthly newsletter, it will literally only hit your inbox once a month. I don't spam my friends. You can head to the website, mimosasisterhood.com, and you can subscribe on the website. So until next time, keep drinking wine, kicking ass, doing your self-care regimens, eating some good food, getting some solid sleep in, taking a bath, do all the things, baby, because you deserve it. Love you. Bye.